And she said, this is a different kind of case. So many children. So many. And we didn't know who they were. Welcome to The Lionhearted, a true crime podcast featuring stories of the brave badasses who spend their lives fighting child sexual abuse. Join me, your host and forensic interviewer, Andrea Harner, as we get up close and personal with these unforgettable stories. You are about to hear one of the most horrific child sexual abuse cases to ever stand trial, and it was prosecuted by our very own guest, Patty Daly-Lewis, the former Delaware Assistant Attorney General who prosecuted crimes against children for 30 years. This story is going to haunt you. There's no way around it, but its legacy is that it actually changed laws in Delaware. Of course, Patty and I can't help but start out with a rant about how insane and inexcusable it is for adults not to believe children. After listening, you won't even want to imagine how much worse this case would have been had children not been believed and if it weren't for a mother lionhearted enough to stand up for her child. Listeners, here's a trigger warning. This show will cover difficult topics, including child sexual abuse. Please take care when listening, and resources will be available in the show notes. Patty Daly Lewis, I am so happy to have you on this podcast. I just want to explain why I have chosen you to be on this podcast. I don't feel that adults in their everyday lives are all that brave especially when it comes to protecting children, standing up for children, helping them seek justice. However, we expect kids to be so brave themselves about likely the most difficult thing that has happened in their lives. And if in the rare case that their case goes to trial, they have to be incredibly brave to stand up in court and face their abuser. And yet, time and time again, we have stories of how adults fail them. However, there are a few people who are extremely brave, and they're lionhearted in the fight for children. And you are absolutely one of them. You're a personal hero of mine. I'm so excited to have you on. Could you please explain to our audience who you are? Well, thank you, Andrea. What a lovely introduction. So I spent my whole career, Andrea, fighting for children, fighting that their voices be heard, fighting to make sure that people believed them. And I have to be honest with you, I really never got over the fact that there were people who had this implicit bias against a child telling the truth. I think it comes from this belief that somehow children make things up. They're fantastical. And as I used to explain to people that I work with, and as you know, people that I train, the fantastical imaginations of children are wonderful and lovely, but they are limited to a font of knowledge. And that's where child physical and sexual abuse is outside their font Mm -hmm. of knowledge. They can't make up the things that abusers do to them because they don't have a fond of knowledge. You can't make up that which you do not know. And so to take the belief that children just make up things and apply it across the board is irrational. Exactly. And that's just not accurate. And there's no data 
Right. To support any fact that children make things up. In fact, the data is an yeah. opposite to that. Exactly. Isn't it 4% roughly? It's incredibly small amount. That small amount is generally a child who's been coached. And that's a terrible, terrible thing when people harm a child like that. Absolutely. You know, Patty, when I've been called to testify as a forensic interviewer and essentially defend my interview, the defense will say, isn't it true that children lie? And then I say, yes, but not about this. That really irritates me that lawyers are doing that. Mm -hmm. That is a question that should not be permitted because there is no data to support it. When children are asked direct questions about mm-hmm. things they know, they do not lie. Now, just like everybody else, they may have some memory deficits, but they have no reason. There's no impetus for them to lie. Unless they've been coached by one parent. Right. And as a forensic interviewer, I'll say it's very clear when we have that kind of situation. It's qualitatively completely different from the overwhelming majority of the other disclosures that we get. And I have never sat with a child and I've sat with a lot of children in my life, either in a CAC interview Mm -hmm. or preparing a child to testify and had them just out and out lie. Never. And I I think there's a reason for that. I think it's an anomaly and the fact that it's an anomaly ought to be broadcast loud and clear. But Patty, I can't help but jump in here and say how frustrating it's been for me. There are great detectives I work with, of course, but I have detectives who come in with this bias that you're talking about. And I'm going, why are you starting from that point? The burden of proof, why is it on the child? And I've often said to them, is there any other crime you roll up on and presume that people aren't going to tell Mm -hmm. the truth. Now, I will tell you, I think sometimes that happens in domestic violence cases, too. Mm. We need to do a better job at educating young professionals, whether they be police officers, doctors, teachers, lawyers, social workers, that you have to approach this as though the child is telling you the truth, just as you approach it as anyone else would tell you the truth. If you want a great segue, I think about this Bradley case that we Mm. had here in Delaware that really did change our lives. You know, Delaware, again, a little bit different in terms of law enforcement. Each county has a Department of Justice. And when Bo Biden came to the Department of Justice as the Attorney General, he set up something called the Family Division. And the Family Division was designed to have people who work in it, attorneys, paralegals, support staff, that were committed to safe families. So it was child abuse, child protection, that includes adoptions and removals Mm. and all those things. Child support, because that plays a big role in Mm. domestic violence and Mm. domestic violence, elder abuse, and the abuse of the infirm. And a huge role has to be played, has never really been played its proper role, offenses committed by juveniles. Yep. So all of those things were together in one group. And so I was the head of the family division. And we had a wonderful state prosecutor, brilliant guy. In fact, he's a federal judge now. So we were doing a lot of collaboration. 
And that was a great thing for, for both divisions, but certainly for the people of Delaware. And there had been an issue that arose down in Sussex County. Now, this was in December of 2009. Okay. So he said, hey, you know, the Sussex County Christmas party is coming up. Why don't we all go? So we all went. And while we were there, the county prosecutor asked myself and now Judge Andrews and Attorney General Biden to come into her office. And she said, we've got a really serious problem. A couple of weeks ago, there was a report by a child to her mother, a little girl, little, little, like 30 months old, mm-hmm. that her pediatrician had touched her vagina. He would often, this pediatrician would often take kids downstairs to get a treat. I'm using air quotes on she was crying and said, he hurt me. And the mother, being thank you, Lord, somebody who believes children, mm-hmm. turned her car around and went right to the state police. They listened to her. Can I and, just stop you for a second yeah. just to say, let's give kudos to this mom who, as you know, so many moms would just would have cognitive dissonance when they hear that. Go, our beloved pediatrician. What? Oh, right. You're a young child. You don't know what you're talking about. And instead, the mom did the absolute right thing, believed her, and did the right thing immediately. She's amazing. Amazing, amazing young mother who did the right thing immediately. And because of her, people's lives were saved. Wow. And that's not an understatement. This man had a very active pediatric practice. It was very large. It was called Bay Bees. He had mm-hmm. a bee as the Bumblebee is the mm. symbol. It, it, it looked like a playground. Mm-hmm. It had children playing and it had a carousel out front mm. and all the rooms had a Disney theme to them. He had a back area with skee ball and all kinds of other toys and games. And what was, great grooming for the kids. And that's why, as we talk later, we'll talk about Mm -hmm. why grooming is Mm -hmm. what Mm -hmm. people need to understand. And the parents, right? Because he was one of these people who would take patients on Saturday and take patients Mm. on Sunday. Now we're up to hurdle number two. They listened to her because they had had some rumblings about it. They heard about people complaining that their kids say, I don't like him. He kisses me hard. They heard rumblings in the community. I love that you pointed out this is hurdle number two. There are so many hurdles along the way. This time, it sounds like you're saying law enforcement did the right thing. Stepped right up. They got a search warrant and executed the search warrant. And it was terrifying. I was not there for the first warrant. We ended up, I think, ultimately doing four search warrants. As they seized things, they came across... I call them thumb drives. They started to look at the thumb drives for about 10 seconds. And the first thing they saw was him sexually assaulting a baby, a little child, very little. This particular perpetrator seemed to focus, I hate to say only on, because at the end of the day, we really don't know how many victims there were. But there were a lot of thumb drives. And there was a lot of raping of toddlers on these thumb drives. So the officer stopped right away, mm-hmm. went and got another search warrant. And Bradley was immediately arrested. 
Initially, when he was arrested, he was put on a lower bail, but then he was rearrested and put on a higher bail. We were now looking at a doctor, well-known in the community. At one point was the at head of pediatrics at the only hospital in this beautiful little town of wonderful people. And there was really no idea how many people could be affected. So the police took every file they had. But, you know, <laughs> the thing about seizing files is you actually have to read them all. And when that day, the state prosecutor, who's also now a judge, and thank God she's on the bench because she's a family court judge. And she said, this is a different kind of case. So many mm. children. <sighs> so many. And we didn't know who they were. They're just videos. And some babies, you can't tell who they are. We have one named victim, one mother who came forward, but video after video were these, and thank God for the partnership between the Department of Justice and the CAC. Thank you to the Children's Advocacy Center of Delaware, who reached out to children's advocacy centers around this area because we could never have handled the number of CACs that had to be done by ourselves. Wow. I mean, it was hundreds. And to a state that was small, but worked together, that pulled together, that said, all right, this is what we're going to do. And an attorney general who said, okay, the most important thing is that we have victim services in place. Whoever heard an attorney general say that? Incredible. Right? So he said to me, okay, Patty, your job is to find an office in Lewis as close to the hospital as possible run it and set it up for the families because we had seized all of these patient files. Mm -hmm. Well, people need their kids files to go to another doctor. Now you, you know, you have kids, I have kids. I mean, they get sick, right? Mm -hmm. You need to go somewhere. You need records. And this of course was in 2009. So it was before (laughs) everything was easy to come by in terms of records. So It was December 18th. And so by December 28th, we had a fully functioning office set up to read the files, assess the files, meet with the families, get them their files, have somebody to sit with them. Mm -hmm. So you have lawyers and investigators on one floor, you have rooms and rooms of files on another floor, and you have amazing victim service professionals and police officers setting up contact information and getting what we need because we had none of that. We had no contact information, even of the patients. Right. It sounds like it was all hands on deck and everyone was in it together. And you truly felt like this collaborative effort was what helped the investigation. Certainly that. Mm -hmm. And a recognition that for the people who worked in the Sussex County Department of Justice office, this was no place for them to be. Hmm. Why? Their children, their neighbor's children, their nieces and nephews, their grandchildren. Like they really didn't belong working in that office. Ah, I see. It was too much. And you have to think about not just the most efficient way to do it Mm -hmm. and the fastest way to do it, but you have to think about trauma. So we know we're going to have a community that's traumatized. 
Right. Do we really want our entire staff to be traumatized in this small community, a small office in a small community to be traumatized? So the answer was no. And so we brought people from other counties, as many as we could, to come in on a rolling basis and about hour and 50 minutes away from our main office. Mm. But the traffic's not like California. So (laughs) we have traffic under control. I'm happy for you, not for me. (laughs) (laughs) So we set up an office. Mm. That was totally devoted to the case. Wow. To the families of the patients, to the patients, the victims, and the community. And I, I just love looking at it as like this entire community has been traumatized. And so, how do we investigate while also taking care of each other from a trauma lens? And we had like, I don't know, two therapists in the county. <laughs> and it's a big county. But again, not a lot of people in a very vast area mm. where patients were coming from within Delaware. They were coming from Pennsylvania, New Jersey, Maryland, Virginia, D.C. It wasn't just a matter of going through the files. It was also them reconstructing this practice to figure out who these people were and how this happened. How could this have gone on for so long? So it sounds like the number one goal was identifying victims. Identifying the children on the videos was number one. And that was handled by the Delaware State Police Victim Services Unit, headed up by a woman who's since retired. Her name is Deb Reed. Bo loved Debbie Reed because Mm. Debbie Reed was a total straight shooter. Mm. And she's laid it out to him and said, look, like this is, they're going to people's houses with a video of a child being raped. First, we had to figure out who it is and why we had an ICAC, an Internet Crimes Mm -hmm. Against Children unit that was actually set up by Attorney General Biden when he became the Attorney General because Delaware didn't have one before he became AG. He set it up. Thank God we had them. And those people are amazing. I think to have to look at those videos all day must have been the worst thing anyone could imagine. And then figure out frame by frame, like, when did this happen? Mm -hmm. Who would have been in the appointment book? He took tons of people walk-ins. It it was not a well-oiled machine over there. And Mm -hmm. so reconstructing the business in order to protect the children. One of the first things we did was have a community meeting. The first one was just a small, if you have any questions, questions we can answer, we will answer that. I imagine the community was in a panic. And very accusatory of the parents. And then I'm like, hold up now. No one said, what kind of a doctor, like what kind of parents would let this happen to their child? (sighs) You know, I had one gentleman push me up against the wall and say, this man saved my daughter's life and now you're ruining his. So you do have a community of people who believed in doctors. And don't we all believe in our doctors? Absolutely. And we both know, Patty, that you can be a doctor who has saved a child's life and a rapist, pedophile. Absolutely. You can be a wonderful police officer, a wonderful judge, a wonderful teacher, a wonderful doctor that does this. So we had to get a community over that home. First of all, as 
many people will tell you, and Bo used to always explain, no one wants to talk about this. But if we don't start talking about it, our kids are going to continue to be victims. That's right. So we had a small meeting and then we had a larger community meeting at the high school. And what we did was we said, you're welcome to come. We brought in experts from other states. Dr. Sharon Cooper, actually, from the University of North Carolina came in, an expert in child sexual abuse. She was there to give a presentation. And then we were there for people who wanted to talk to somebody. Mm. Everybody who was therapeutic in nature was wearing a blue shirt, Mm. blue t-shirts that said, you know, just a little DOJ emblem on them. And people knew. And then if you were scared and you wanted to make a report of any information you had, you could go to any one of six rooms with a police officer, a counselor, a victim services person, and a lawyer in each of those rooms, including one staffed by the attorney general. So people could come in and say, these are my fears. This is what happened. This sounds so well thought out. I and imagine you didn't have a playbook for this. No, we right. didn't. And I remember Bo saying to me one day, I know you're really busy, but somebody ought to be writing this. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Documenting this for God forbid the next time. I know he did reach out to the attorney general of Rhode Island. Patrick Lynch was his name. He was the attorney general at the time. And they had had a mass fire where a lot of people were killed in a nightclub. And he gave him some idea on how to do these mass criminal cases. But we didn't have anybody telling us what to do with the case in front of us. Bill had told me on December 18th, you get the best expert there is. I don't care what it costs. I don't care where they are. On the phone tomorrow, Patty. And you get them down here because we need to meet with them. And we're lucky, right? Because we have Children's Hospital of Philadelphia right up the road. Right. And it also shouldn't be discounted that you had a great leader. That's so important. ability to lead. And people, and the other people that were in the positions of control on things, also great leaders. Mm -hmm. I mean, the colonel of the state police, the secretary of the children's department, they were all wonderful. The Children's Advocacy Center. And all these people actually doing their jobs makes all the difference and deserve to be commended. But I ask you, what would have happened to those children if we didn't have this? What would we have done but for the ability to actually see it? And then we had people that were willing to come forward and say, this happened, that happened. And we could have been like, well, if it happened, why didn't you report it? You know, we could have said that to 30-some doctors, too. The hospital had multiple complaints. But at the time, doctors had something called a peer review privilege. And it wasn't publicly known. We learned at the time we had a professional regulation that didn't really directly regulate doctors. So for a group of lawyers who throw each other under the bus like it's a hobby... You know, we could lose our license if we don't report somebody. That didn't happen. So we also had another track of people working to look at every single law we had and what needed to be changed. We had a crisis, and this crisis was born of a combination of a truly evil person. Mm -hmm. 
a group of people that did not even think about child sexual abuse. A system that dealt with complaints about certain licensed professionals outside of any public purview. That's what we were dealing with. We had to start tackling these problems on all fronts. I'm guessing a large part of the investigation beyond identifying the victims that were on the thumb drive, because that's all you had, was finding corroborating witnesses. And having parents who have the guts to step up and say, I think something may have happened to my child. And I think we had that because we built an infrastructure Mm -hmm. around supporting families, supporting parents. I had one mother sobbing, telling me, my husband will leave me if my child was a victim. If he ever finds out I left her alone with this doctor. There's a lot of reasons people don't want to say anything. A lot of them didn't want to say anything because they were afraid for their kids. They didn't want them marked in some way. And they could not conceive what this person had done to them. In your wildest dreams, Andrea, a baby, a two-week-old baby, nobody can imagine it because we had physical evidence. And from that physical evidence, an outstanding criminal case was able to be built. I just pulled up the stuff I have for what ultimately became of the case and how many counts he pled to. He didn't plead. He demanded a trial on Mm. tape. There it was. What? And he was found guilty of 14 separate counts of rape in the first degree, five counts of assault in the second degree, five counts of sexual exploitation of a child for acts of physical abuse committed against children. He was sentenced to 14 mandatory life terms plus 164 years. So look, I know there are criminal cases with nothing, with a half of a thumbprint. Okay, That wasn't this. The most important thing about this case is that we knew that there was a criminal case, there was a civil case, and there was the matter of a community facing trauma. And you brought something else up too. The grooming thing. Mm-hmm. Bo said to me one day, Patty, I know this isn't maybe in our wheelhouse, but we have got to start educating people. So do what you got to do. Set up what you have to set up. But I'm telling you, when chapter one, two, and three on this case is under control, you need to work on chapter four. And that is broad-based community education. Because you have parents who knew nothing about it. You have professionals did not know their responsibilities to report. You had people on report lines that did not know where cases were supposed to be going like this. You had people across the system that were not talking to each other. Professional regulation was not talking to the rest of the system. Luckily, we were able by June of 2010 to get a package of bills passed and implemented and funded that addressed these problems because this leadership was not letting one thing pass the goalie net. My jaw's on the floor looking at these dates you gave me, December 18th, 2009, and then 
you had these laws changed by June 2010. How were you able to do that? And this is sad, but we capitalized on that moment. Mm -hmm. We need to start training people, particularly the next generation of youth serving professionals on what this is and what happens, how grooming is so insidious. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And you know what? In the beginning, you said, I think it's a combination of adults not believing in themselves and not listening to their inner voice. I think when they're trained, they have a framework, actual knowledge that they can hold on to in order to believe in themselves, to know the language, to know the tools, to speak up, and then to be able with that, trust that inner voice. I wanted to ask you, all this work, all the bravery that you exhibit every day, it's not for the faint of heart. How do you bring joy into your life? I think it's really spending time with, and this is very trade in some respect, but my friends and my family, my mm -hmm. daughter and son-in-law, my husband, you're going to laugh when I tell you this, but I have a group of seven girlfriends. We've known each other since like fourth grade. And I could ask them or tell them anything. And they would be right there with a hand to help. Having people like that in your life. If I got in the car tonight and drove to New Jersey and went to my best friend's house, any of their homes, they'd be like, oh, thank God you're here. What do you want for dinner? And then they'd be like, probably chicken parm, probably crab cakes. <laughs> they know you. And we're not all in the same field. And maybe that helps a little bit. What brings me joy is being with them. Patty, thank you again for taking the time to be on this podcast. And we hope that you will join us again. Thank you. And that concludes Patty's episode of The Lionhearted. I wish there were more Patties in the world. I mean, is there a greater calling than to be a lawyer for child victims? Obviously, I don't think so. Remember that the only reason this child rapist was prosecuted and convicted is because of the thumb drives. The existence of evidence is incredibly rare. The overwhelming majority of child sexual abusers are insidious and never leave evidence other than the child's words and trauma. We must believe children, and we must do better as adults to protect them. We're clearly not going to be able to prosecute our way out of this travesty. So get trained in child sexual abuse prevention. It's easy enough to do, and you can find out how in the show notes. Thank you for listening. The Lionhearted is produced by Amanda Kelso and me, Andrea Harner. Special thanks goes to Kevin Tossi for editing, and of course to our guest, Patty Daly-Lewis. Follow us at Lionhearted Pod on Instagram and all the other social channels. And be sure to subscribe so you don't miss any future episodes. If you enjoyed today's episode, we would so appreciate you sharing it. Lastly, I want to leave you with a question. Who in your world is Lionhearted? Let us know at lionheartedpod at gmail.com. And thank you so much for listening.